0: Miss the show, no worries. We've got you covered on point and on the podcast. A debate over delaying March break continues, but the real conversation we need to have is how one week is nowhere near enough time to get the kids caught up. After missing months of education, will secret recordings of a high-ranking Iranian help families of those killed on Flight 752 get justice that they're trying to get? And the head of CSIS breaking his silence to warn Canadians of the threat China is to the national security of our country as they aggressively steal sensitive technology and data that is a danger to us all. Let's get talking.
1: You just don't ever get to call Am I getting through to you? That's the point.
2: Do you understand? There is a point. At the point where enough is enough.
1: Here's Alex Pearson on Global News
2: Radio. you listening. They're hanging on by the tips of their fingers, thinking that we can do this, we can make it until March break, where we'll have a week to uh, regroup, uh, relax, uh, spend time with our families. And get ready to get back at it after uh, that week. To extend it to May or sometime in June, that is going to cause a huge, huge problem uh, for those education workers, teachers who are struggling to make it day in and day out to get to March break. The same as they
0: were prior to the holiday break. Yeah, well, we're all tired and we're all hanging by our fingers, but delaying March break is the least we must do for our kids. We don't yet have the official decision, but we could have it by tomorrow. And it looks like the Ford government is likely going to somewhat delay the March break because they're concerned over the spread of these variants, which, um, you know, it would, every time we seem to take a holiday, uh, cases have been seen to spike. Cases go up. So they may push it to a later date. And of course, the move got instant condemnation from the education unions. That was, of course, Sam Hammond that you heard there speaking. And they've also started a petition to leave March break alone. And in a perfect world, I'd say yes, leave March break alone because we're all tired, but we're not in a perfect world. And It is not the virus that concerns me most. It is actually the uh, long-term damage kids are suffering as they melt their brains on screens that they're not learning from. And there are real concerns about the valuable social aspects that they can only get when they're in a classroom. The other concern I would have is if we take the kids out for March break, there's no guarantee that they would go back because maybe the cases would go up and the unions would make a big stink about, you know, it's too dangerous now. And the unions argue that March break is crucial and that there's been enough chaos in our schools, and I do agree with them on that. In fact, there's been chaos in education for years, thanks to them, with uh, constant strike action, which had kids missing all sorts of education before COVID hit. you remember that? Why don't they ever worry about that chaos? But if chaos is the concern, that's even more reason than we keep the kids in school. I mean, what is the point in sending them back if they're just going to get pulled out a couple of weeks later? And given most activities are actually shut down there's not really much parents can do with kids that week other than let them continue to rot their brains you know on screens that they're already on way too much i mean would it not be better to keep kids with their peers keep them busy the union of course along with the ndp further argue that teachers are exhausted and need a break and and i do not doubt that they are But they don't have an exclusive on that. I mean, try selling that to the frontline workers who have been working around the clock for a year. You know, try telling parents who have had to play teacher while trying to do their own jobs and doing both very badly. I mean, we're all exhausted. And we've all had to make sacrifices. And very few others outside of teachers have had as much downtime as they did over the summer And since last March, when schools actually shut down. Because back then, you may recall, teachers were idle for weeks while the boards tried to come up with some kind of education program. And what they came up with was barely, barely tough for the teachers because parents, again, had to do the job. I've talked to numerous parents who said that they barely saw their kids' teachers. Many would just either send a bunch of assignments once or twice a week. Parents would have to deliver that, do that with the kids. Other parents have told me they... Got online a couple of times a week. In our household, we were lucky. At least we got a visit with the teacher twice a week for an hour. But that was it. And I am not dumping on teachers. And this is not to say all teachers did nothing, because I know many who did. But without question, there was barely any actual learning going on last spring. And I would say through the last couple of uh, weeks, few weeks, because the biggest education boards in the country haven't really been able to get their acts together. They certainly couldn't back in the spring. And back then, the unions were actively trying to tell teachers to do as little as possible because they didn't want e-learning to work. I would get all sorts of emails with the literature saying, you know, don't push yourself on this. And that they, that's because they did not want the precedent to set. And already in the Toronto board, teachers have had two PD days. One is happening this Friday, which will give them a four-day weekend. So that's a bit of a break no one else is getting. And if teachers are so burned out, I think, you know what? Let's think outside the box. Because March break doesn't actually have to be a grind. You can spend it in the classroom and get creative. You know, take out the paperwork and instead use the week to let the kids get creative, either doing sports or drama or educational projects. Uh, You could get them to do music or educational games Or, I don't know, get them caught up with everything they've missed. And if the teachers need a break, I mean, nothing is stopping them from using sick days. Certainly, they've got an abundance of paid sick days. But I've spoken to a lot of teachers who actually do want to teach because they see the damage being done to the kids. And I think they are really willing to make the sacrifice. The unions may speak the loudest, but I don't think they actually speak for all teachers, But if the education unions have such an issue with delaying one March break, I don't think they're going to like the sacrifice that's going to be needed to get the kids caught up on months of lost education because it's going to take a heck of a lot longer than one week for millions of kids in this province to make up for all the lost classroom time. I mean, we're either going to have to see cancellations of summer break or having kids repeat big parts of the year. I've mentioned it a couple of times, and I can only speak to my situation because that's the only thing I have authority on, but my son's teacher told me in November that she was having to reteach a lot of parts of the grade one curriculum to the kids because they were far behind. I mean, imagine how much worse it is now. I mean, there's no way months of lost education can be made up in a week, and so it's going to require sacrifice from everyone, including, yes, the unions and teachers and teachers. Kids and parents, because we simply can't, not in my opinion, we can't in good conscience push kids forward who are very clearly not ready and haven't developed the skills they need. And if the public education unions are not willing to make those sacrifices, then Premier Ford is going to have to make a decision. He's going to have to offer parents more educational choices. Maybe offer tax credits for parents to find other independent education uh, choices, either homeschooling, charter schools, or semi-private options. Parents are already looking for other options. We've talked about that on this show. Again, not dumping on teachers. But if we're really in this together, then it's time that everyone step up and do what is best for the kids, not union interests. Somebody
1: please think of the children!
0: You know, in Britain, they've actually been coming up with plans for what they call pupil catch-up. And so they have calculated that kids have lost seven months of education because of their lockdowns. We don't have that data here yet. But they found the most vulnerable, those in lower um, lower or marginalized communities, they're the ones paying the greatest price. And so they're now creating new education programs to address all the lost class time and to heal kids' mental health issues at the same time. So they're not just adding more hours to the classroom, but creating programs so kids can learn and heal at the same time. And if Ontario education unions won't be part of the solution, then they are a problem that the province needs to go around. And if teachers care as much about our kids' As we are told, and I think they do, then they need to step up and make some sacrifices that we all have had to make at the end of the day. Because it is the teachers who are at the heart of solving what is a generational education crisis. Stay with us on point. I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio. We could learn as early as tomorrow if March break is a no or a go, and the Ford government is looking to delay the spring break to avoid getting a spike in cases, certainly with these variants. Unions, of course, have come back swinging, saying that teachers are burned out and need the break, and no one's going to dispute that because, oh yeah, we're all exhausted. But what's the point of sending kids back only to pull them out again? The bigger issue for me is how are we supposed to get kids caught up in a week, given they have lost months of class education and are so severely behind. I mean, ultimately, I think sacrifices are going to be needed by all because one week's not going to come close to getting these kids back on track. Paul Bennett is Director of Schoolhouse Consulting, also the author of the book, The State of the System. And, Paul, you just penned a piece on this particular issue that's now in the Globe and Mail. Good to have you.
3: Thank you for inviting me on.
0: All right, so why should or shouldn't we cancel March break?
3: Well, a week doesn't sound like much, but given the constraints that we're under and the challenges we face, it's better than nothing. So I'm proposing that instead of just having regular classes, we should have what is called a catch-up week, which is a week of focused activities, uh, which is centered on improving students and giving them the support they need to catch up on work they've missed.
0: I can only speak for my own child. I mean, that's just uh, because I've only got my own experience. And I know he's behind. I know he's frustrated. He has spent hours melting his brain online. And I know I've spoken to his teacher who has said I'm, you know, having to teach a lot of uh, the last year he was in just to get the kids caught up. And that was back in November when she said that. I was reading a British um, report about some of the things that they're doing. And they have estimated that kids in the UK have lost about seven months of education. Do we have data to, to kind of give us a clearer picture of how much time kids here have lost in class, uh, you know, learning?
3: There's research, but not a whole lot of it comes from Canada. Most of it is from the United States and from the UK, as you indicated. Mm-hmm. And um, I have been delving into what the situation is. Across the globe, it's called um, the COVID slide, and it's deeply affected kids' learning um, but there's been a reluctance here in Canada. The research institutes, the faculties of education, they seem to have a different agenda. And they're loath to discuss uh, learning loss. But everywhere else you look in the world, the public debate is focused on learning loss and how far kids have to go to catch up on missed work.
0: My concern is, and I think it would be quite negligible, is if we push these kids through because, you know, we don't want to be too hard on them, but push them through um, because we don't seem to fail kids anymore, uh, fully knowing that they're not um, going into the next grade or maybe graduating from from high school with the skills that they need just because we want to be a bit soft on them. Are you concerned about that?
3: Very much so, and more particularly about the reluctance to Evaluate students and assess them, and to realistically um, look at what their needs are. This whole is a self uh, reinforcing prophecy. It's that uh, you identify a problem, and if it's one that's uh, insurmountable or too difficult to confront, then you don't evaluate it, you don't test it, you don't uh, look at it. And I think that falls, this uh, whole question falls into that scope. For example, it's called, globally, it's called the COVID slide, but it's not something that you hear discussed in Canada. Instead, you get things like um, a CBC radio podcast, and I don't like to say anything about the CBC, but I suspect it's fair to say this on your program, that mm-hmm. in November uh, 2020, claimed to have a program on the COVID slide's impact on kids' learning. Instead of that, what we listen to was um, some evidence that there's a serious problem, and then it defaulted to the standard pre-pandemic responses, dismissing learning loss concerns and simply saying that the children's anxieties were so great that mindfulness exercises would uh, provide them with some solace and that reducing the stress was what the focus should be on and what we needed was not more assessments, but softer or no assessments. Mm. So um, the state of the system, which is the title of my book, is, uh, I would say, a denial that there is a problem with regard to learning loss.
0: Right. And it doesn't, you know, March break, I mean, I I talked about it off the top of the show, you know, March break doesn't have to be about more paperwork, the teachers could make it kind of outside the box thinking by working on projects with the kids, uh, drama or sports or pushing them in directions. And as you say, now catching them up on areas of weakness, maybe turning, you know, counting, um, you know, dollars and cents or learning how to tell time, make it into a game. It doesn't necessarily have to add to a teacher's uh, stress or anxiety. But but without question, these kids have to uh, get caught up in either the unions and the teachers are with us or they step out of the way. And, and if, if they can't get out of the way, then I think a province at some point has to um, give parents a choice so that we can find other independent learning avenues to get the kids the education that we pay for.
3: That's going to happen by default because the um, challenges are so great that parents will seek alternatives on their own. But let mm-hmm. me reframe the whole debate that we're going through right now. Why is it that it's framed as canceling March break? Right. Why isn't it a matter of replacing March break with a catch-up week that everyone needs? In other words, uh, whether it be the school system that steps up And meets that challenge and provides intensive uh, tutoring by regular teachers on subject areas that they're lacking, particularly in math and uh, reading and in writing, which is where the deficits are, whether that's by the school system itself, stepping up and taking on that challenge, or whether it's by default to tutors and private organizations that fill the gap, something needs to be done. My problem with this is why is it always debated within the context of um, labor management relations? In other words, it's too much work, so therefore we must have a March break.
0: Well, I, I, I can only assume and say that it's because we've allowed our education to become so political and we've given the unions too much power. Um, because I actually think a lot of teachers do see the problems and, and wouldn't have a problem sacrificing and giving up something because we're told we're all in this together. And parents have certainly had to do a lot of the teaching uh, over the last uh, year. Um, so, if we're all in this together, then they, they should be willing to step up. Otherwise, they're going to have to lose a summer break. At some point, there's going to have to be an honest conversation about getting these kids caught up. Uh, and if they can't give up a March break, maybe they'll give up a summer break, which I think would be a whole, you know, an entirely different battle.
3: You're making some great points, and you're expressing the frustration of thousands of parents out there who are kind of beside themselves. But I have to say that there's research to support what you're saying. For example, um, supplementary learning time through catch-up academies offered Mm -hmm. on weekends or during holiday breaks is one of the recommended solutions to the problems that we face. Um, What we're facing is a cumulative learning loss. And the best option, of course, is one-on-one tutoring which is focused specifically on the deficits of the kids. In most cases, that happens to be mathematics, reading, and writing. They're getting little writing practice right now, right. for example. But the issue uh, you know, should be faced squarely. There's a deficit in terms of what the kids are learning. Um, let's just take a look back over the last 11 months. I know we're in a daze. I know we're kind of traumatized by... Uh, COVID-19, we don't really think straight, but go back over the last 11 months. The kids have been out of school for five out of 11 months. Yes, they had online learning. How effective was that? There's many people that are questioning the legitimacy of it and whether it's a valid substitute. Now, you, where you live, you've gone through six weeks of um, which online learning In many of the school boards. Now, what would be the sense of um, saying that we're going to have another week off? That's what's prompted um, your Minister of Education, Stephen Lecce, to even consider the unthinkable, which is cancelling March break.
0: Stay tuned because, of course, it's going to get real loud in the province of Ontario over this, but we will continue the conversation because I, I do think the silent majority uh, agree uh, likely with your opinion. Always appreciate your time on this, Paul, and we'll chat again.
3: Thanks for inviting me and have a good evening.
0: That is Paul Bennett, the author of The State of the System, if you want to read that, and he has penned um, an a article in the Globe and Mail on why we should not be cancelling March break, if you want to see his reasons behind that. and Stay with us on Point. Alex Pearson, this is Global News Radio. Gotta wonder, are the families of those murdered on board Flight 752, are they ever going to get justice? It sure doesn't seem like it, but there's a new secret recording that the uh, Trudeau government has obtained that could provide some crucial evidence, and it suggests an Iranian official who is identified as Iran's foreign affairs minister, this is one of the highest-ranking Iranian officials, he admits in this recording that the downing of the Iranian flight was intentional and not an accident, as they keep claiming. And on the tape, the man's heard saying this was likely a deliberate attack involving two or three infiltrators He's then heard saying the truth will never be revealed because they'll find a thousand ways not to reveal it. And Iran has been trying to settle with the victims' families, offering about $150,000. They want this thing to go away. What they don't want is this case ever getting into an international court. And right now, there are two proposed class action suits against the Iranian government. They should be decided on whether or not they can proceed in the next couple of days. But again, how do you get justice when you're dealing with a terror nation. Paul Miller is partner at Howie Sachs and Henry. Uh, you are a lawyer for 22 of the families who lost loved ones on that flight. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. What do you make of this new evidence and, and does it help hinder or where does it take, um, you know, the action that these families are trying to, to get?
1: Well, you know, I, I, I've i read the article Um We have someone in our office who's originally from Iran, and she says it's his voice. Um, We don't know when the recording was made. Um, You know, the there is a suggestion that the Canadian government's had this since since November, which Mm -hmm. I I think causes a lot of problems for family members um, because because now you know that you know they they fled Iran, they've come here or elsewhere in the world to avoid that that. Government and now they're, they're they're facing an issue with can we trust the Canadian government and so that is it's troubling uh, that if they have had it since November that it wasn't revealed uh, to any of us who are involved with uh, this case but they can't get justice like you know to think that you're going to get justice from uh, a country like Iran uh, is is. Is unfortunate, but I, I think it's uh, it's nonsensical. Unfortunately, so
0: so by I think at the February twenty first, a judge will rule on whether these class actions can actually proceed. But even if they they can, um, you know, you you are, are representing twenty two of the families who are desperate for justice, and you know, you when you think of what they've been through in the last year and a half, literally, this would have been the. Story of 2020 had the pandemic not hit, and when I think about those families, I think of how lonely, isolated, and how completely abandoned they must feel.
1: Oh, it's it's. um, We we have calls with our clients, uh, probably more with these group of clients than I've ever had on any other large case in 20 some odd years of practice, because there is an isolation aspect, there is a fear aspect because. There are, you know, a lot of family members are still back in Iran. There are threats being made against these people. Uh, mm-hmm. They can't get out. We had one. We had one family who had a brother trying to get from Iran to Canada right after the accident. As he was trying to leave Iran, they took his passport and said, "You're not going anywhere." So I, I can't even imagine what that's like. And then the loneliness, obviously, because you can't gather and you can't be with family. You can't do these things that's Mm -hmm. part of the grieving process. And I can't even imagine those who are the only ones left in their households uh what that is like. You know, it you know, we have we one of our clients, she lost her husband and son. That was her whole family. And she's now alone. She sold her house. She had to move to a she couldn't stay in her house. It was that bad. Yeah. And it's terrible.
0: Well, we, we saw in the Air India bombing, um, you know, which was nothing short of, of murder. Um, you know, you get the governments, they come out, they do the photo ops, they, they promise the families will be there for you, will support you. We saw the same thing from Justin Trudeau, who actually went to some of the victims' homes to say, don't worry, I'm with you. They've never heard from him since. And so they get told that, that, that Canada will fight for them, will stand with them, will get justice. And I don't get the sense that they will get that justice, and that's what's so—it's um, not just heartbreaking; it's cruel.
1: Yeah, I, I think you know part of it, part of the problem here is the the party involved being Iran. You know, the lack of transparency is is terrible. You know, the fact that they've delayed that they delayed getting the black boxes uh, to those who could analyze them, the the fact that they're coming up with different stories, the fact that they denied uh that they shot the plane down at first the fact that they cleaned up the site so fast that no one could examine it everything is terrible about this so the problem is is i don't think any regime could deal with the iranians that's the problem
0: yeah you have to have
1: someone on the other side i think ralph goodale has done a very good job trying to communicate with the families um i know that there have been constant communications with him Um, and I think the families are appreciative, but his his role sometimes has gotten confused because his role is to make sure something like this doesn't happen again. It was basically to make the the sky safe, which is great um, because that involves also not only uh, the Iranian government potentially, but the questions arise, why did the Ukrainian airlines decide that it was a good idea to take off in the midst of a very, very tenuous situation in the Middle East that night or that morning. So mm-hmm. I think there's sometimes a blurring of what Ralph Goodale's uh, mission was in his reporting and, and his investigation and what the families are hoping that Mr. Goodale and the Canadian government can do. Um, I think that, listen, the, they are I, we know that the Canadian government is negotiating uh, with uh, the other countries that lost citizens with Iran. It's a very slow process, um, and there are lots of hoops to go through. It doesn't help that we don't have uh, regular diplomatic relations with Iran. That's going to make it more difficult.
0: Yeah, it doesn't help that they cleaned the, um, the the evidence up out of the scene within hours of the plane crashing. It doesn't help that they didn't turn over the black boxes and whatever they did turn over was, uh, you know, probably uh, cleaned up, um, you mm-hmm. know, if not erased. Um, it doesn't help that um, the international community is not, you know, completely involved in this. I mean, a former UN prosecutor calls these recordings highly significant, but the only way... We're going to get, I think, any kind of justice is if this case gets into an international court. The Hague takes this. Um, yeah. What, in your mind, you know, here in Canada, does justice end up looking like for these families?
1: Um, this is going to be. It, it, this could be a little bit cynical from some, viewed by some, but I think the 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 justice there is. No, first of all, let's put it this way: there's no justice. Um, I, you know, there is no justice that uh, your family members. Uh, who are coming home from their country of origin, even though they might live around the world, were shot down by their country of origin. So they're, they're, I, I, I don't believe there's closure, and I don't mm-hmm. believe there's justice. The only thing that we can do, because there are families that they do have to get on with their lives, I don't know how they do it, but there are families that have kids who will hopefully one day go to university. How are they going to pay for that? There's those who want to bring parents over from Iran. How are they going to handle that and and support their parents here because it's too dangerous in Iran? The only way to help these these folks right now, the only way is to get some compensation for them. And it's cynical. It's a terrible way to look at the situation. Unfortunately, no matter what you want to do, the law can't reverse time, right. and that's the biggest problem, so you know my in terms of the families, you know we made a conscious decision that we were not going to sue the Iranian regime like some of these other cases for a variety of reasons, and my fear is that some of these uh folks who have who are here and are pinning their hopes on some of these cases against Iran they're going to get let down because the law just doesn't support a lawsuit against another country it, because there's sovereign immunity and right. you can't sue another jurisdiction unless it was a terrorist act. Really, there's been no indication that it was a, under a definition of terrorism. Um, right. So that's number one. Number two, even if you were able to get under the ter- the, the uh, exception to the sovereign immunity, Iran doesn't have any assets in Canada, and there are courts in Europe that say you're not going to let another country who waives sovereign immunity collect on assets in our country. So my concern is people are – there are certain people within the cohort of, uh, of, of people that lost family members that are pinning a lot of hopes on that. And I'm really mm-hmm. worried that they're going to be crushed by the fact that that's such a long shot. Yeah, and even strung if along you were for, successful, for years. Yeah. And, right, and then even if you are successful, how is that getting justice? Mm. Like, again, I don't know, like there, I don't think there is justice.
0: I really don't. Yeah, sadly, the law also doesn't work when you're dealing with a lawless uh, terror regime. Yeah. And so uh, I think the best we can do is what we didn't do for the Air India bombing victims, and that is make sure that these people are supported. Paul, it is a very complex issue, but I do appreciate your time on it.
1: My pleasure. Anytime.
0: That is Paul Miller uh, joining us with the latest on a story that really uh, has not gotten nearly the coverage it, it should have and must, and certainly um, you know abandoning these families that are completely isolated in a terrible time. I'm Alex Pearson on Point, and this is Global News Radio.
3: To be clear, the threat does not come from the Chinese people, but rather from the government of China that is pursuing a strategy for geopolitical advantage on all fronts, economic, technological political and military, and using all elements of of state power to carry out activities that are a direct threat to our national security and sovereignty.
0: That is the voice of David Vignon. He is the head of CSIS, and in what may be the clearest and most direct language we've heard about the threat China poses to this country. And he spoke publicly on uh, Tuesday, revealing that China has been aggressively stealing sensitive technology by targeting Chinese Canadians and Canadian companies and stealing political, economic and military secrets that directly threatens our national security, as well as sovereignty. And he warns that China is running propaganda and influence campaigns in this country to intimidate and silence critics and immigrant communities. But they're also stealing sensitive info, um, you know, compromising things like biopharma, our health sector, as well as companies involved in artificial intelligence, quantum computing, aerospace, and on and on it goes. Christian Luprecht is a professor at the Military College of Canada and Queen's University. He's also a senior fellow at McDonald Laurier. Institute, and he joins us now. Good to have you. Hello. So I saw this, I was reading this article last night, and I was quite surprised, not that this is happening, but by the fact that he is so blunt about this and speaking out. Are you surprised by that?
2: And those are, of course, just the espionage activities. We're not even talking about Chinese activities in terms of, um, of foreign interference in our democratic processes, electoral processes, in um, the spread of misinformation and disinformation and so forth. So I was, to some extent, uh, I guess it, it represents the reality of things. But, of course, given how careful... The current government has been in terms of um, it's the way it has been treating China and the challenges of the relationship in particular with the uh, kidnap uh, diplomacy that China has been practicing with uh, Canadians. Um, it shifts, I think, uh, it's, it's, it's a shift in the discourse because uh, it means that the government, at least indirectly, is expressing uh, to Canadians uh, the reality of China's activities, but it's doing it it's sort of at arm's length by letting the director of the Security Intelligence Service articulate it, articulate it rather forthright, um, but not the prime minister articulating it in the same sort of fashion. So I think it's a way of countering some of the critics, including myself, that have said the government is not being forthright with Canadians and the government is not doing enough. And so what we got is... Um, a uh, landscape of the of environmental scan of, of Chinese activities, in particular with regards to espionage. Um, but we also got considerable reticence, I think, from uh, Director Vignon that it is not clear that CSIS has all the legislative tools and has all the resources it needs to be count- able to counter the extent and scope of activities, in particularly by China.
0: Right. And I mean, uh, you know, Nortel probably should have been our biggest warning, um, you know, that they were not uh, in it for the short game, but China was in it for the long game. And and you just see what the damages that they did to that particular company. And they've never stopped since because they're in it for the long game. But CSIS, you know, Mr. Vignon has um, said, you know, the illegal activities that they're doing is just part of a global campaign of intimidation as, as China continues its geopolitical reach, um, trying to grab power. But we are the only democratic country that doesn't have a foreign intelligence service. And so is his speaking out publicly um, a signal that we are going to be changing that?
2: So there is, of course, a nuance to that. We have a foreign intelligence service, which is the communication security establishment. So we have a signals intelligence service. What we do not have is a foreign collection service or foreign human intelligence service where we actively place, if you want, spies in other countries. Now, CSIS is active um, abroad, but it, it is constrained in its ability to only collect intelligence that's directly related to Canada, Canadians, or Canadian interests, and when it comes to foreign intelligence, it can only collect that within Canada, that is to say on other countries' activities uh, within Canada. So the question that you're raising is the infamous question of, on the one hand, should CSIS's mandate be expanded, or at a minimum, should the legislation that we currently have be interpreted in a more expansive fashion than governments have traditionally Done. And the other question is whether CSIS is overwhelmed with the activities that is already facing on the home front. So whether we actually need a dedicated uh, foreign collection agency uh, for uh, to be able to go abroad as every other major democracy other than Canada has. Uh, To be able to place people abroad and you only have a foreign human intelligence service for one of two reasons. To conduct Mm -hmm. targeted assassinations, which Canada is never going to do, or to engage in foreign intelligence collection.
0: It seems, though, that we, we've waited so, so long, and this government has been very slow to, um, you know, uh, pivot and, and take a new direction or um, new stance with China. Uh, for whatever reason, I think uh, the Trudeau government seems to think that appeasement is going to win the day, which, you know, China laughs and takes advantage, I think, of signs of weakness. And they've already done quite significant amount of damage. Um, you know, is it too little too late?
2: So I'm glad that we're actually getting a pivot because since the 1997 Sidewine investigation, when the Canadian government effectively instructed CSIS to wind down its investigation into Chinese activities, um, CSIS has really sort of been muzzled in its ability to speak out about China. So the fact that we can now speak out again about China, that I think in itself is a really important milestone for Canada. Um, but uh, it certainly means that uh, we're on a steep learning curve. I think this is also what Director Vigneault hinted at. Uh, We've always leveraged our alliance, especially with other intelligence agencies, uh, quite effectively for Canada. But the problem is that Canada isn't putting a lot of skin in the game, and we're relying disproportionately on other countries. And so as China obviously steps up its activities elsewhere, those other agencies are also busy. And so that means they're going to have less opportunity to deal with priorities and interests that are directly related uh, and of concern to Canada. And so the question is whether we do need to become more broadly involved, and not just for Canadian interests, but perhaps also to help out other countries uh, that are being actively undermined and that simply don't have the sort of same intelligence capacities, because you can imagine that any, um, uh, any stabilization mission the Canadian Armed Forces are engaged in, um, any type of uh, development effort, our UN sort of uh, mission and efforts in Mali, the Chinese are active in all those environments and theatres trying to undermine Canadian and allied and Western democratic efforts. And so there really is, I think, um, this is a wake-up call, but... So far, Canadian governments, the startup tag for a dedicated agency would be well upwards of $500 million. Um, No government has wanted to be able to put that money on the table. But given that we're putting billions into bailing ourselves out from having underestimated um, the threat emanating from China um, with regards Mm -hmm. to biosecurity um, and the inability to have a proper strategic assessment capacity, This is obviously, um, I think, a wake up call that a few hundred million dollars might not be a lot of money to spend to save ourselves from having to get into this sort of uh, billions of dollars expenditure again because we underestimated the threat.
0: Not, not to mention the billions and hundreds of billions that has been cost to this country because China lied about COVID and uh, continue that propaganda campaign, trying to change the narrative on what role they played and, um, you know, lying to the world at that point. I mean, you know, they're not to be trusted. And I just hope that this signals finally that the prime minister and this government are waking up.
2: Well, it certainly is an opportunity, I think, to start to shift course and to show that yeah. playing nice is no longer an option.
0: No kidding. All right. Stay tuned. We will talk again. Always appreciate your time, Professor.
2: It's been my pleasure. Thank you. you.
0: That is Christian Luprecht joining us here with the latest. So I thought that was a really interesting story and uh, quite surprised to hear it. I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio. You, of course, can join us Monday through Friday starting 630 sharp here. I'm Alex Pearson on point and this is Global News Radio.